I'm speaking with Tim Wilson, a member of the Federal Parliament in Australia. Tim, welcome to Driving Change. Thanks for having me. And a small point before we get into our discussion, and this is actually something that's quite important to mention for our Driving Change audience, because it can be quite confusing. Um, the Liberal Party of Australia, of which you're a member, is actually on the conservative side of politics, which is something that throws an international audience often. It can, yes. So uh, we're on the centre-right. Great. Look, you're a Member of Parliament now, but for many years before that, you've been active in public debate in Australia. Um, you've worked in a think tank, you were Human Rights Commissioner, you've advocated for quite diverse issues, you know, from free trade to marriage equality. Um, in many ways, you've built your career courting controversy and critiquing the system that you're now part of. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that journey? Well, essentially, I've gone from the experience of working in the world of ideas um, to what it means to be practical and have to implement them in terms of policy. And, uh, you know, that's been a journey. You know, when you're in the world of ideas or think tank world, you can stick with um, sometimes very ideological worldviews, things that are very sharp in their focus, sometimes that have um, an abrasive edge. Whereas the journey I went on, particularly um, when I was Human Rights Commissioner and as a parliamentarian, is you're exposed to the full um, complexity of humanity. And so what you actually learn if you keep your mind open is how to translate your big ideas into something that's practical and saleable and connects with people in their life. Uh, and I guess that's the sustainable base to affect change. I think you become more um, aware, more empathetic and more human in the process of your engagement. What prompted you to go into public office? Where do you think you can make the biggest difference? Well, then it came down to a frustration because uh, you can work in the world of ideas or even what I was, which is as human rights commissioner, a statutory officer of the parliament, where you have sort of almost the legal standing and authority to raise some really serious issues. But what became obvious is that uh, you can raise them in the public square, you can shape public debate, but in the end, the decisions are made by the people in the room at the time the decision is being made. And the power and weight of argument is amplified dramatically if you can be in that room at that time standing up for, you know, what we would say is classical liberal values or modern liberal values uh, about the type of country we want to be. Um, and so I saw that time and time again, and then it was ultimately the opportunity that came up to represent uh, an amazing community that I do, that I seize on that opportunity and it's been a thoroughly worthwhile journey. And that's a good segue into the next question. Um, let's talk a little bit about the state of policy making in Australia, um, which, which you're now charged with doing. People overseas often scratch their heads a little bit at Australia. On the one hand, um, there's this incredible economic record. I think it's 29 years of unbroken growth until the pandemic, the longest growth streak of any developed economy in the world. Um, Australia mm -hmm. largely managed to avoid the very bitter partisanship that we're seeing in the US and some other places around the world at the moment. And yet, you know, we had, what, six prime ministers in 13 years, this sort of carousel of leaders suggesting that that, that something's wrong, that, that you know, it, it, so so what, what where do we go? What are the strengths of Australian policymaking that could potentially other countries could learn from and what needs to be improved? 
Well, I think one of the things that makes Australia unique, particularly amongst Western liberal democracies, is that we actually do have a relatively unified culture across the country. Um, in practice, that means that most people are going on a similar journey. Um, yes, there are regional differences, but they're not as stark as they are uh, in other parts of the world, say, for instance, in the United States. Um, you know, I'm in the southernmost state, which sometimes people refer to as the Massachusetts of the South, uh, and then uh, in the northern state of Queensland, our lived experiences are different. Um, weather is different, cultures are different, they grew up um, organically, but there is still a common thread of nationhood, which I think binds um, the common values, which make policy making a bit more, uh, make it more straightforward. The other thing um, that I think does matter is we, and this will be heretical to many international audiences, is we actually have compulsory voting. Now, I realise that's an infringement on liberty, but what it actually means is that everybody has an ownership of the government. We don't have a debate about whether a government was ever legitimately elected or have a legitimate right to implement uh, its reform agenda. Uh, governments are elected, everybody's had their say, uh, and as a consequence, people accept um, the outcome. And one of the great tests of democracy is not who wins and who's the victor and whether they're able to do it, it's whether those who are defeated um, accept their defeat and accept the legitimacy of the victor. So I think that's central to it. But the other thing, of course, is, as you said, 29 years of uninterrupted economic growth has enabled Australia to confront many challenges um, and uh, in many cases, it's enabled them to, uh, our country, to um, finance structuring or restructuring of the economy or parts of society to take as many people with us on the journey. Now, I'm not saying public policy in Australia is perfect, it's not, um, but when you can cushion the impact on people, you're able to take more people on a journey. That's going to be difficult now because like every other country, Australia is now, you know, due to the pandemic facing major economic headwinds. Have we been complacent? You know, have we prepared for this? Do we have the right policy institutions in place? Well, and I think that's an excellent point. We are going to face some big challenges where we're going to have to have reform, where we're not going to have winners and uber winners. We're just going to have people who uh, perhaps um, benefit or see benefit reform and there's going to be a cost and people are going to have to carry that cost. So, um, but I think there's an even bigger burden of not doing anything. So half of it's about how we get the public discussion right, how we get the discussion where people understand that there's a cost to inaction. Uh, and I think that is going to be a problem. The other thing is we've built in a lot of welfare and support measures to cushion the impact of previous reforms. The trade-off from that now is that there's quite a lot of, let's say, uh, uh, financial fat in our welfare system. And therefore, we're going to have to find ways to become a bit leaner and a bit uh, more uh, agile in the way we operate as a country. But I'd still rather work from a position of strength and find a way to slim down than already have um, significant debt burdens uh, and not have many support measures for your country while trying to address the issues of racing to a global competitive, uh, competitive environment. And as we move in the COVID-19 pandemic from the emergency phase to the sort of learning to live with the virus phase, um, you know, there's going to have to be difficult conversations about with with constituents and with the public about the trade-offs involved. Um, yeah. And, you know, how how are you seeing this playing out? Um, what, what needs to happen? Um, how should policymakers go about communicating these trade-offs and the risks involved? Well, I think part of it, unfortunately, is going to require people to experience the consequences of the COVID recession, which really hasn't started yet. 
since the start of the pandemic, Australia has, because it's had a, a relative bounty, been able to cushion the impact and particularly through wage subsidy programs, carried many people through a crisis that's um, nearly unprecedented uh, in our history. But until people feel the consequences of uh, uh, the economic crisis, I think it'll be hard to make the case for reform. But I think once people do, and you know, the Economist newspaper once wrote um, of Australia that we're a country that's not very good at managing prosperity, but we're very good in crisis. Uh, when we're confronted with a crisis, when we understand the nature of the problem and the impact is human, the people will accept that there is a need for change to build a more sustainable uh, future for the country. So I think it's a good time to be prosecuting ideas, um, particularly around how you restructure the economy to make it more liberal and in, uh, more dynamic uh, and really building an economy for the 21st century. Um, so I think it's going to require that lived human experience of Australians to accept that, but I do believe once they do, they will. And there have been quite a few different policy approaches to managing the pandemic in Australia. Like the US, uh, the state governments have responsibility for many of the aspects um, of, of public health and, and others that are pertinent to, to the crisis. What are some of the different approaches that Australian states have taken and what are your views on that? Well, different states have taken quite radically different approaches based largely on the attitude of the governments that they elect. So in my state of Victoria, uh, we have a um, Labor government, which is you know, a left-wing or Democrat-style government uh, in the United States or, uh, or other countries. And essentially, they've approached it looking at uh, this empowering themselves, you know, the centralisation of power and, uh, and implementing giant lockdowns across the whole of the state, and then basically looking through and deciding which sectors they're prepared to open. Um, so they're empowering themselves at the expense of citizens. In the state of New South Wales, which is where Sydney is, it has a Liberal um, government or a centre-right government, and it's taken a completely different approach. It's looked at how does it empower citizens to take responsibility and understood that it's uh, its responsibility, the government's responsibility, to articulate the case about what needs to be restricted and to justify it. Um, so essentially you see two very different models of governance, one which is high centralisation and the citizen has to justify their behaviour to the government, uh, which is the social democratic tradition, uh, and the liberal democratic tradition on the other end where uh, the government has to justify why it's restricting people's liberties uh, and the terms in which they're doing it. So as a consequence, Victoria is in lockdown. It's been in lockdown now basically for about six months continuously with huge detrimental costs to their economy, to livelihoods, to people's health and welfare. And in New South Wales, it's been the complete uh, reverse. Now, their health circumstances aren't identical, but their approach is radically different. As we come out of the out of this emergency phase, um, and and even Victoria is starting to move out of lockdown now, how do we ensure that some of the rights and freedoms, which which most people willingly gave up um, as part of you know the public health response, how do we ensure that these are protected in the long term, um, and what does a sort of uh, ongoing response to, to the crisis look like in terms of balancing rights with the public health response? Well, as you know, we don't have a Bill of Rights. Um, and in fact, in the state of Victoria, where we've had some of the harshest measures, it has the most rigid, what we call Charter of Rights or Legislative Charter of Rights. Um, and so, and that was completely discarded uh, once the pandemic started. So it says something about the fact that uh, people were prepared to trade them away and weren't prepared to stand up for them 
when they were uh, were under attack. So, but in saying that, I think that um, the best approach is really to adopt the one that New South Wales has taken, which is to understand that government has a job to do. We know that the pandemic poses very ser serious health risks, particularly to the elderly and people um, with immunosuppressant conditions. But the trade-off should be that the government should then have to come along and justify proportionally why what they're trying to do is necessary to protect people's lives. You know, things like face masks, I have no problem with. I don't think they're a big deal. Um, and you can see the proportionate relationship between the imposition or the denial of people's liberty uh, and the outcome in terms of public health. Um, whereas there are other measures like we had in Victoria a curfew where there was no evidence. In fact, our chief health officer said that there was no evidence or public health need for it to be implemented. So I think it's about getting that sense of balance and proportionality right and understanding that the government has to justify the restrictions. Um, the citizens shouldn't have to defend their freedoms. This is a, a quite a different discussion that's happening in Australia too, in, for example, the US. Um, I mean, what is what is it that's that's unique about Australia? You talk in your new book about um, the need for a new social contract. This is a, a a topic which is which is common around the world in discussion at the moment. But what do you think is uniquely Australian um, in in the need for a new social contract? Uh, well, I think there's some fundamental generational imbalances in the structures of our society. So I wrote uh, the new social contract because what we're uh, seeing is um, issues around young people feeling dispossessed or not being able to realise their full opportunity. Now, this is not a unique thread to Australia. You see this in the United States and the United Kingdom around the cost of education, uh, the, uh, the limited employment opportunities, particularly after the global economic crisis. Uh, and of course, now this is going to be compounded um, by COVID-19. But we also see it in things like house prices and where loose monetary policy has led to asset price inflation, which has been good for people like myself who own their own home or own assets at the expense of young people wanting to get opportunities. So, and I think when you, you have this conversation about what's an intergenerationally just society, one where uh, you know older, older Australians or older people are able to secure what they have, um, but don't get preference for um, their years of effort and labour over young people won't secure their opportunity. Um, you can create a more inclusive society where it moves forward together, but leads to quite um, substantial reform um, to promote home ownership, uh, to e even out tax rates, to remove tax complications, uh, and to build what is essentially a more, uh, in the classical sense, liberal democratic society that's open for everybody and a more dynamic capitalism too. It sounds like you could uh, you could write a, a sequel um, into generational equity after the pandemic because you know the, it's, only, it's only getting worse at the moment, right? That's right. That's well. This is the thing. I, I wrote the book mostly pre-COVID and made a warning that Australia's intergenerational tension was ready to pop as soon as we had uh, an economic crisis, and it had just started when I was concluding the book. And it's now quite obvious that this is the problem where. Uh, we've sacrificed the opportunity for younger Australians, as many other countries have for their younger population, to secure the health and welfare of their older population, which is only exacerbating the already existing trend. Now, this trend is prevalent in popular culture here, uh, as it is elsewhere, um, but it's particularly a problem when the systems of governance, of tax uh, and ownership actually are structurally work against young people being able to get ahead, as we have, that we need to address it. And COVID-19 is only compounding it 
the book was kind of written uh, for the 2020s on the expectation that a lot of the problems that I was outlining would be revealed in 2030. In fact, I would argue that the, the, the clock is now ticking and they're already present and uh, the, the sort of the political crisis that will follow the health and economic crisis will probably hit closer to 2025. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're one of the younger members of, of the Australian Parliament, um, but if you were going back to the very beginning of the career, of your career, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, never be afraid, because one of the things about the contest of ideas is the worst anybody can do is demonise and criticise you, but it actually um, has no lasting effect. Um, particularly in the modern age where people seem to throw around virtue without any sense of restraint or responsibility. It's really important to stand up for what you believe in and do it with a sense of conviction and passion because ultimately timidity is, uh, timidity is uh, in surplus in the world, courage is rare, uh, and the more you stand up, the more you can actually affect change um, in whatever position you're in. But you also, frankly, encourage other people to stand up because there are a lot of people who will read to a rote script um, or, or learn off the ideas of others, but people who genuinely have ideas, genuinely are prepared to prosecute them and communicate not just the idea, but their passion and commitment to it with sincerity, ultimately win the day. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. No problems. Thank you.